So I was thinking through how would we jump into a series on Acts, and I love the book of Acts, and I'm, I'm so excited about this series, and we're going to walk through uh, in, in the next weeks ahead. I'm just really excited about it, but how do we jump into it? And I thought, what better way to jump into a series on the book of Acts than to tell you a little bit about the week I spent in rural Kentucky this summer. And so some of you know that uh, I uh, went on vacation with my family to uh, a lake house, my in-law's lake house in uh, rural Kentucky. It's such a great time to be there. I always love being there. It's so calm and, and peaceful, and it's just I just love being there. This, this time in particular, there was um, a kind of a sadness over it at, at times. There was always an empty seat. Abby's mom passed in the fall, and so that was... That was hard and it was ever-present, but, but still it was a good time with families, uh, family together. And going to rural Kentucky, for me, even though I grew up not far from there, uh, I, I, I don't mind telling you, feels, and it's going to sound like I'm joking, but I'm not, uh, emotionally and, and socially like getting off a plane in a long way Malawi. Right for me, like when going to rural Kentucky is like going to the long way allow it. It's a place I've been a lot of times. I I kind of know what people are saying, but I but I'm always a little bit unsure of what I'm supposed to do next or how I'm supposed to respond to people. And I, sometimes I think things get lost in in translation. So while we were while we were there, for example, uh, in Kentucky, not Malawi, we had to go to the convenience store. And there's only one convenience store. I think there's a Dollar General, like a million years away. Uh, so you go to the convenience store, and we needed to get bologna because rural Kentucky bologna, hand in glove, you guys get it. And so we went to the convenience store to get bologna. We step up to the counter. We order bologna thin sliced. I thought they were going to blacklist me from the store. The lady uh, at the counter was like, thin sliced? Y'all cracking me up. And so uh, that, was, that was our intro into it. And I wouldn't have worried about the blacklisted thing at all, except apparently they do blacklist people from this place called Sailings, this little convenience store, because right by the cash register, there was a picture of a silver Honda Civic. And then handwritten over top of that said, if you have information about this car, we'll give you five free movie rentals. Because at Sailings, the convenience store, you can get bologna and rent movies. Uh, I can go on and on about my experience there. But we get to the counter to order the bologna. And, uh, and, and the lady who's getting ready to cut it looks at it, it looks at us and says, and I quote, it's going to be a while. My go gear ain't working today. Translation, there's something prohibiting her from doing her work with any level of enthusiasm or excitement or any pace, right? When we read the book of, of Acts, I, I love it because I love how passionate the followers of Jesus are to, to get the, the message of his love and his salvation out into the world. Their go gear was most certainly working the whole time, the whole book of Acts. We see it in how they spoke. We, we, we see it in how they lived together, how they loved and served each other. And the whole book of Acts only spans 30 years. It's about 33 AD to 63, 64 AD. That's it. It's 30 years living in light of the resurrection and a movement that changed the world is born. So Acts is fast-paced, and we see how God does incredibly big things through surprisingly average people, which is good news for us, by the way. And when I read it, it just reminds me how much God can accomplish, absolutely, but how thankful I should be to be a part of this, to be a part of what God is doing in this world, what he continues to do in the world. And that's, that's the real story of Acts. This is what God continues to do in the world. If you look at how the book of Acts begins, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, now this is Luke talking. Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, 
uh, acts as the follow-up to the Gospel of Luke. And so he says, in my former book, it's addressed to a guy named Theophilus, which is a cool name. He says, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke is about what Jesus began to do and teach. Cue in on that word, began. It implies that the work isn't over yet that the story isn't over, that it didn't end with Jesus, that the story is still going. Acts, the book of Acts that we're gonna be digging in to over the next couple of weeks is telling us what Jesus continues to do and continues to teach even after his death, even after his resurrection, and even after his ascension back into heaven. Jesus is just getting started. There's more to accomplish more miracles, more transformed lives, more go, more of everything that he started. And so have you ever thought of that? Have you ever thought that what's in the Bible is only the beginning and that you're actually the rest of the story? If you turn to Acts chapter 17, you see the followers of Jesus go to a town called Thessalonica and the Thessalonians see them coming down the road and they point out and they say, look, those people that turned the world upside down have now come here. Jesus isn't finished. So to open up to kind of what we're doing in this series, we're gonna be asking the question, have we been turned upside down by the gospel? And as a result, are we turning our families and our church and our city and our world upside down in love as they did? Are we engaging as they did? Are we going as we should, is our go gear working? And so to wrestle with that today, we're gonna dig into uh, and drop right kind of in an important moment in Acts chapter two, where Peter, one of Jesus's first followers, delivers the first distinctly Christian sermon. And it is pure gospel. But there's a lot going on that leads us to to Peter standing up and giving this first distinctly Christian sermon. And so we need to understand a little bit of that before we get to the actual sermon. Uh, So let's let's do that to set the the moment uh, in in its place, to set the scene a little bit. Acts chapter 2 starts this way. When the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place. The disciples were together. They were in Jerusalem together, but they weren't alone. From all over the known world, followers of of Yahweh, of God, would pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this festival of Pentecost. This would happen, uh, this festival would happen post-barley harvest, which is Passover, Passover, and then pre-wheat harvest. And before you go back into the fields, like, yay, party, harvests. Um, but, But before you go back into the fields, you would actually all come together and you would celebrate. And you would remember God's goodness and you would remember your blessings and you would party. And so this Pentecost is like Thanksgiving and Mardi Gras put together. That's what was going on in Jerusalem while the disciples were there. Jerusalem was packed and the disciples were there waiting. But what were they waiting on? They were waiting on something that Jesus had promised back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus, before his ascension, he looks at his followers and he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And then you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, in the neighborhood, in the surrounding neighborhood, and to the ends of the earth. By the way, we're here because of Acts chapter one, verse eight, because of what Jesus told his followers in Acts chapter one, verse eight, go to the ends of the world. That's why we're here right now. And so all of Acts hinges on and repeats and reflects on 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8, over and over and over and over again. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses all over the world. But this moment we're dropping into is probably best described as, as an in-between moment because they're waiting. They're waiting for this thing that he had promised to happen. Have you ever had one of those? One of those in-between moments? See, Jesus tells his followers, I've got a big mission and a big calling for you. And it's not going to be possible through military power or laws or politics or fame or even money. It's only going to be possible through the Holy Spirit. So you got to wait for it. And then Jesus leaves. He ascends. He's gone. So in their, they're in this in-between moment. Something's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And in-between moments are usually not very comfortable. Maybe you're in between jobs. It can be an uncomfortable place. Maybe you're in between houses or living situations. That can be uncomfortable. Maybe you're in between relationships. Maybe you're in between doctor's appointments, doctor visits. In between is where you experience uncertainty and unease and, and grief and anxiety. See, they just experienced a loss. Jesus was gone again. And so what do you do with the loss? What do you do in those in-between times. And the disciples show us what we should do in those in-between times of life. They stayed together. I have no doubt that there were some in that group of followers of Jesus that were like, you know what? The Holy Spirit is going to come in minutes. I'm positive of it. I'm positive. It's right around the corner. It's coming. I have no doubt of that. And I'm sure there were others in that group based on what they'd experienced. They were like, oh, man, I got a shred of hope left, but I, I don't know if this thing's going to work out. I what is he even talking about with the Holy Spirit thing? And so being together, sticking together in this moment, those that had high hopes could loan their hope to those who had little. In the in-between moments, and this might be the most important thing I say to at least a couple people in this room this, mo this morning, if you're in an in-between moment, don't be there alone. They were in between, but they were together. And God meets them right where they are. That's important. Hang on to that one. God meets them right where they are. The disciples of Jesus, they're in this in-between moment. They're waiting in this bustling city. They're in an upper room, kind of secluded to themselves. And all of a sudden, a wind, a powerful wind, rushes into the room where they're staying. And the scriptures tell us the wind became like fire. And that fire splintered off and rested on the disciples in something that looked like tongues of fire. Luke here is trying to describe something that's really unique, but it's also really bizarre. It's odd. That's an odd thing, right? You're sitting, you're waiting for Jesus to do something, and all of a sudden, wind becomes fire, fire splinters off, and you got tongues of fire on your head. That's a weird thing. And if you're sitting there and you're hearing that, you're like, I'm out. Like, everything started good. Everything, the music was good earlier, and now he's talking about tongues of fire. No thanks, I'm out. Right? Let me just say this. We'll often use strange language to try to find a way to describe the indescribable. If you ever watch a basketball game and say uh, a player hits his seventh, eighth, ninth, and then 10th three-pointer in a row, he goes 10 for 10, what's the commentator probably going to say after that 10th one goes through? He's on fire. Yes, somebody plays NBA Jam. Thank you. Right? He's on fire, right? But no one grabs a fire extinguisher. It's trying to describe the indescribable. So... Whether Luke is describing actual tongues of actual fire actually resting on the disciples' heads or he's trying to find words to describe the indescribable, don't get hung up there. This is why this is important. It's Old Testament language. 
In the Old Testament, we see on Mount Sinai, after the Israelites leave slavery in Egypt and they're wandering through the desert at Mount Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, which was a gift from God, by the way. Like, hey, let me rem remind you how to be free. You've been a slave for 400 years. Here's how to live a good, free life. And then we hear that, that his presence comes to rest on the tabernacle, the mobile temple that they use to worship God as they wandered through the desert to the promised land, the, the, the promised land of safety and freedom. And his presence, that presence and that pillar of fire guided the people all the way. What Luke is telling us here, what he's describing is God's presence is now resting on Jesus' followers to guide them. And you know what the New Testament oftentimes calls the followers of Jesus? The temple of God. We're now mobile temples led by his presence. That's the significance of what Luke is saying here. And I know for some of you, you think, you know what, Holy Spirit stuff, no thanks. Father, Son, that's good. I'm pretty full up there. I'll take a hard pass on the Holy Spirit stuff. But the book of Acts is often called the, the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is so central in what happens in the book. Any honest reading of the book of Acts, you're going to come face to face with the Holy Spirit. Now, on the other hand, there are some of us in this room that probably think the Holy Spirit is the most important person uh, in, in the Godhead, and, 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 and that's what you want to lean into most, rather than seeing it as the person of God meant to point people to Jesus. And we could do a whole series on the Holy Spirit, probably should, maybe, maybe we will at some point, but for now, let me leave it at this. Jesus tells us what the Holy Spirit is given to us for. It's given to teach and convict and move us to a place of holding hands and obedience with God. That is what the Spirit is given to us for. And I don't know about you, but I need it. Like, I need help saying what I need to say. I need help going where I need to go. I need help loving my spouse and my kids the way that I'm supposed to. I need help doing my work in a way that reflects that Jesus is Lord. I need help, and the Spirit is that help. And so we have wind, which the Hebrew word for wind is actually spirit. There's some interesting play there. We have wind, and we have fire in the room with disciples. And then what comes next? The disciples start to speak in different languages, not spirit languages, not secret languages, different languages, the languages of the people that were represented in Jerusalem at the time. The implications of God's message here are really, really clear. There's no more barrier between people and me. There's no more barrier to people hearing the, the, the gospel. This is saying that, that the gospel is unrelenting, it's unstoppable, it's unbounded, and it's good news for all. That's what the languages are all about. So Peter stands up in the middle of this party when no one asked him to, and he says, hey, what, what you're experiencing here, the wind, the fire, the, the tongues, hey, everybody gather around, I know what's happening here. It says the prophet Joel, we just finished up a series on the minor prophets, the prophet Joel it's what he was talking about. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of salvation where God's spirit is poured out on all people. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. And I know some of you in the room are like, man, I wish I was there. I wish I would have been there for that. Or, or, or man, I wish, I wish God would work that way now. I wish, I wish he'd do some, something miraculous like that now. Some of us in this room are like, no thanks. The tongues of fire thing, they can just stay outside of the sanctuary for all I care. But some of us are like, man, Wish God's spirit would show up in that way. And that's okay. 
It's okay to want that. Paul says we should desire the gifts of the Spirit. We should want to see God do miraculous work in this world, miraculous healing and restorative work in this world. We should want that. But miracles don't sustain us. The gospel does. And so Peter doesn't ultimately point in his message to the miraculous things that they're seeing. He points to Jesus for the rest of this sermon. And as we walk through this sermon, we're going to see three things about how the gospel actually does its work. We're going to see that God meets us where we are. He tells us the truth about ourselves. And he brings good news into that truth. God meets us where we are. God tells us the truth about ourselves. And God brings good news into that truth. So with that, let's hear this first Christian sermon. It's in your bulletin, uh, or you can just listen along. If you have your Bible, you can open to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you with confidence that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned in the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the Roman Empire in the day of, of Jesus, where we've dropped into now, Caesar was supreme Lord. The, the, the Roman military had to declare Caesar is Lord. But the early church said something radically different. They claimed something completely different than that. Jesus, not Caesar, not the state, nothing. But Jesus is Lord over all the earth. And so when Peter is saying of Jesus that he's been raised to the right hand of God where his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet, he's referencing Psalm 110. And you can go back and read that. But the psalm seems to be implying that God's gonna bring his kingdom on earth through this violent military upheaval. He's going he's gonna to thwart all of the enemies of God's people. Just another Caesar, right? But Jesus is totally different. 
He uses his authority to usher in a kingdom in a completely different way. His victory, that victory, by the way, Jesus' victory is the defeat of evil, the final defeat of evil. The battle may still rage on in our time and place, but the victory is secure. But that victory didn't come by military force, not by crushing others, but by the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. So Peter says in verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See, what Peter is saying is that he's Lord. He's the king, but he's come as a a servant. And his sacrifice, his sacrifice leads to our restoration. That's what makes him Lord and Messiah, king and savior. That's Peter's sermon. Kind of makes you wonder why you have to listen to me for 30 minutes, right? So let's start to unpack this. Where does the gospel start? It starts, God meets you where you are. The first Christian sermon was delivered at a festival, a party. And we're going to hear later uh, in Acts that about 3,000 people became followers of Jesus that day. It shows that God can meet people anywhere, and the gospel should travel through his people to everywhere. So how'd you walk into this room this morning? Were you expectant? Did you have that kind of expectancy? Did you walk in with joy? Did you walk in hopeful? Maybe you walked in just getting by. Maybe you walked in tired from all the journey. Maybe you walked in not exactly sure what to even hope for. All those people were represented at Pentecost, and he met every single one of them that day. God will meet you where you are. Some of you know I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up a follower of Jesus, and so at 19 years old, I was trying to figure out who I was. And I was, I was really, spent most of my time desperately just trying to be noticed, to feel some level of validation, like I was good enough. Uh, and, and so uh, who I was and how I lived would sometimes shift minute to minute just to find that validation. I was just constantly looking for it. And I was so terrified, so worried that, that I would be left out and not noticed and not cared for and that I just pushed and I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And you know what? The world started to praise it good job, keep going. And so I actually started to think, well, I guess I'm headed in the right direction. And I was lost. And I was exhausted. I was making good grades. I was a college athlete. I was pushing, 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 pushing to get noticed, to be validated, to feel loved. And everybody told me, that's what you're supposed to do. But I was empty and I was lost. And then this little church in New Albany, Indiana, that's been around 200 years, invited me into a place that I probably didn't belong. They invited me to go with them to the mountains of Guatemala to an orphanage there to help with a construction project. I didn't know anything about construction. I was miserable on that trip. At one point, they were uh, building a wall, kind of doing these wall slats, and and, uh, I was so bad at it, I got like something in my eye, and I was like, oh, watch my eye out, and I cried for like a day. And uh, so bad at like the wall thing that they were like, hey, we've got an idea for you why don't you go dig holes? And I'm like, okay. And that sounds like a joke, but it's not. So I'm just like digging holes over in the corner. And I didn't even do that right because uh, I would like swing the ax and water would spray everywhere. And uh, I was like, oh, that's the main water line I think I just hit. And they'd be like, it's all right. And they'd come over and patch. And I'm like, thanks so much. I'll be sure to avoid it next time. 
right? And it would come over again. I did that like four or five times. And they're like, you need a timeout. Um, so I was, I was ridiculous on this trip. But they invited me in anyway. And it was an entirely different economy than I'd ever experienced in my life. See, up to that point, you only made it into a place if you were good enough, if you were smart enough, if you were tall enough, if you were fast enough, then they'd let you in. And so I was constantly pushing for that, constantly worried that I wasn't good enough. But they invited me in when I wasn't good enough. They invited me in because I mattered, because God said so. And that changed my life because it changed how I saw myself. It opened me up to the idea that maybe this God who created everything, maybe he really does love and include. Maybe he really does invite in. And pretty early in that trip, there was, uh, there was a time, you know, in the middle of the day, and they're like, okay, it's time for quiet time. And I remember, I didn't grow up in the church, and so quiet time, I'm like, but I like talking to people. Why do we have to be quiet? Like, I don't understand what's going on. And so just so you know, if you grew up in the church and quiet time means something to you, it doesn't for everybody. And so I was trying to figure out what we were doing. It's like, is it nap time? I don't know what we're supposed to do, but everybody had their Bibles in their hand. And so I'm like, hmm, Bible reading time. They should have just told me. And so uh, I didn't know much about the Bible, but I knew sometimes Jesus' words are in red. And so I just turned to a place where there were a bunch of those. And I later know that I turned to the Sermon on the Mount. And I started to read about a way that this world could operate where people cared about each other and where people didn't walk out on each other and when people, where people made it their job to serve one another and they were loyal and kind to each other. And I thought, man, that is beautiful. And then Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. And they were like birds flying over. And I was like, wow. Look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or sow, store up in barns, yet God provides for them. He says, look at the lilies of the field. And there were like flowers around. I was like, I think this is like talking to me or something. Look at the lilies of the field. They're here today. They're burned up tomorrow. Yet I tell you, Solomon in all of his splendor isn't dressed as beautifully as one of these. And then he says, don't worry about tomorrow. And I was like, that's all I ever do. All I ever do is worry. All the time. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and God will take care of everything else. And I took that Bible and I closed it and I said, okay. And from that moment on, I've been trying to figure out how to do that, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus met me where I was even though it wasn't him that I was looking for. At least I didn't know it was him that I was looking for. God doesn't expect you to get all cleaned up and get ready to get near him. It's his work to come to you. We don't have to look past Jesus coming to earth to know it. So please don't buy any part of that lie that says you gotta be right. You gotta get yourself all right to be loved by God. You are already loved beyond what you can imagine. He gave everything to prove it. God meets you where you are. He also tells us the truth about ourselves. Two times Peter says something that's really jarring in this sermon, and repetition matters. In verse 23, he says, Jesus was handed over, and you crucified him. Verse 36, he's Lord in Christ, whom you crucified. This is 50 days after the resurrection. Peter looks out and says to this crowd of people that were at a party, you killed Jesus. Now, it's almost certain that all of these people, we know that 3,000 were, were saved that day, became followers of Jesus that day, that we don't know how big the crowd was. 
but we can be logically sure that not every single one of those people had an actual hand in the crucifixion of Jesus. They couldn't have. And I will tell you this, like I wasn't there. It was 2,000 years ago. I wasn't there. That doesn't seem to bother, bother Peter at all. In this first sermon at a party, Peter stands up and says, you killed him. And in case there's any confusion or you didn't hear me, let me repeat myself, you killed him. How can Peter say this? I mean, how, how can these people, how can, how can I, how can we be responsible for this? Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the ground is level. Whether you grew up in the church and, or you've never really been interested in, in seeking a life that reflects the character of God, the ground is level. Peter is saying, we killed Jesus, that our sin each and every one of us put Jesus on the cross. That is a bold and terrible claim. So it's important to know how are we defining sin. Well, there are a few ways to define it, but the one that I've found myself most attracted to or most helpful to me, I think, is John Wesley tells a story. He's the founder of Methodism. Tells a story of when he was a kid, he goes to his mom, he says, what's sin? And, and his mother says back to him, sin is anything that separates you from God separates you from others or separates you from the person God has created to you to be. That to you is sin. I like that definition very much. See, because sin isn't what we are, but it is what we do. And so we might think of sin and think like, okay, I can, I can create a list. It's like greed and drunkenness and adultery. Yeah, but those are outworkings. At the root, at the core, those things that separate us are things like preferring creation over creator. We've all gone after the thing more than the one who gave us the thing. We've all believed the lie that we're smarter than God. None of us would say it that way, but, but we all, when we choose something that's not God's best, we all kind of go into this like, well, here's why it's okay for me. Like, I get that it's a problem maybe for some other people. Well, here's why it's okay for me. It's just my little thing that I'm doing on the side that it doesn't really affect anybody anywhere else. And you know what? I'm working so hard in every other part of my life. I deserve this little distraction that doesn't really hurt anybody. It makes me happy, and God wants me happy anyway, right? So it isn't really bad for me. It'd be bad for other people, but it's not really bad for me in my situation. We believe we're smarter than God. We've all chosen creation over creator. We believe the lie that we're smarter than God. And we've all failed to acknowledge that he's the giver of all good things. All of us at some point or another have taken uh, some of our ability or our talent or our resources or even the place where God has put us, our time and place in history and, and said, uh, those, are, those are mine. I deserve the credit for that and failed to acknowledge that God is the giver of those things. He's the one that put us in the place. He's the one that put the brain in our head and the breath in our lungs. That's the stuff that separates us from, from God, from others and the people that God has created us to be. So back to Romans chapter three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet all are justified freely by his grace. The solution to our problem is that we've been made right. That's what justified means. We've been made right, not by getting there on our own, not by shedding the sin, but via a gift of grace. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, yet all are justified freely by his grace because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, it says in verse 25 of Romans chapter 3. 
So what God has done with our problem is that he's put forth a propitiation. That's not a word I bet you used this week, um, but, uh, you know, impress somebody with it. A propitiation basically means uh, that, that a, um, the penalty that deserves punishment has been laid on something else or someone else. So on the cross, Jesus absorbs the punishment that we deserve. So yes, we put Jesus on the cross. Or at least he was willing to go there because we needed him to. God meets us where we are. God tells us the truth about ourselves. And then the thing is, the truth is actually really helpful to hear. It helps us make sense of the world around us. Uh, Josely, my youngest son, is, uh, he's in a remote control car phase. So uh, the battery budget at the Abbott household is reaching unsustainable levels uh, right now. Every 13 seconds or so, he's like, it's dead again. And I'm like, throw it away. Um, I don't I think that, I don't say that um, most times. But anyway, so uh, not, not too long ago, he, you know, he was like, oh, it's dead again. It's like, okay, let me get you some batteries. And, uh, and so I see him over on the side. He's like putting the batteries in or whatever. And then he tries to make it go and doesn't go. But instead of it's like asking for help beyond just the batteries, he, he like just sits just like five feet from me and just rolls it on the ground and looks at me sadly. <laughs> I'm like, is it okay, buddy? You doing all right? He's like, it's broken, it doesn't work. And I'm like, okay, well, bring it over here, let me check it out. He had the batteries in backwards, right? So, it would not have been very kind or loving to me in that moment to look at him and say, when I see that the batteries are in wrong, to say, you're perfect. Everything's just right, and then walk away. Because he needed help. See, the truth is helpful, and hearing God tell us the truth about ourselves is actually helpful, because I know what's in my heart. I know how I still struggle with longing to get noticed, longing for that validation. I know how when compliments are being doled out, I'll quietly wave my hand in the corner hoping to get noticed. I know how I still envy the stuff that people have that I don't have. I know what's in my heart. That God says this about me actually helps me believe that he knows me. I couldn't worship a God that, that looked at me and said, you're perfect, you're all right, and then walked away. Because that God wouldn't know me very well. I've fallen short, I've walked away from God with my actions, I knew that before I was even a Christian, and God's out at us. We're broken, we've fallen short, we're in trouble, and we can't fix ourselves. We can act when God says, hey, everything's not all right. When he tells us the truth about ourselves, we can say, I'm fine. I'm at least better off than this guy next to me, but praise God, he knows what's in our heart. See, if God said, was, says, like, hey, you're all right, what do we do with the anxiety? What do we do with the depression? What do we do with the doubt? What do we do with the lust? What do we do with the selfishness? What do we do with the anger? If God says we're supposed to be all right, that would lead to shame. But it doesn't have to because God tells us the truth. He looks at us and he says, you're in a bad state, son. You're in a bad state, daughter. God meets us where we are. He tells us the truth about ourselves, but he also brings good news into that truth. Let's go back to the sermon for a second. Verse 29, Acts chapter two. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is 
here to this day, but he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on a throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned in the realm of the dead, that his body did not see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. So Peter's just laid out, like we sent Jesus to the cross to cover the cost of where we fall short. But he's also telling us something else. He's telling us that Jesus' victory becomes our victory. Because of his victory over the grave, doom is not the end for those who are being made right in Christ. Christus victor. His righteousness is given to us as rightness. 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin so that we could become his righteousness. That's how you seek his righteousness, by the way, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, that's how you seek his righteousness. Trust Jesus. So God meets us where we are. He tells us the truth about ourselves. And then the gospel, the good news, actually has a chance, a chance to do the work that it should. It creates an alternate opportunity for us. And so how should we, right now, how should we respond to a God who meets us where we are and tells us the truth about ourselves and brings good news into that truth. Well, we get a picture of it in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what, what shall we do? They wanted to get started. They were ready to go. They heard the truth and they responded to it, which makes sense. Except the thing is we always respond to the gospel, always either by leaning in and saying, I, I need this, I need it again, and I need it again, and I need it again, and I need it again, or we say no thanks. The Puritans have a saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. We could say, I've got this, I'm gonna handle it on my own. But either way, we're responding to the gospel. The heart is melted or the heart is hardened. When the people heard this, when they heard the truth about themselves and they heard the good news that was brought into it, the gospel, they were cut to the heart. What causes us to be cut to the heart? Jesus' death? Yeah, but more than that. Verse 36, you crucified him. The gospel isn't real until you use a personal pronoun. It's just not. It's an idea, maybe, a philosophy, way of living, maybe. But the gospel isn't real until you use a personal pronoun. That's why we say around here, take as long as you need to, but no longer than you have to, to decide is Jesus who he said he was, to answer that question, because it's the most important question that you can possibly answer. Either he is, and he's absolutely worth following and absolutely worth worshiping, or he isn't. It makes him a liar or a lunatic, and he's absolutely not worth following and absolutely not worth worshiping. Jesus doesn't leave us a middle ground. And that goes for those who are trying to figure out who Jesus is for the first time and those who have been, at the been in the church their whole lives. Peter replied to this question, what do we do? with this, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and I love this part, and for all who are far off. 
And with many other words, he warned them, see, it was longer than two minutes. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. And those that accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Being cut to the heart, surrendering to Christ as Lord and Messiah, King and Savior, means saying, what shall we do? We'll do anything. It's more than just saying, like, okay, like, okay, give me like one or two things that I can do to kind of like add to my life uh, to, to kind of to kind of be be good in that sense, to be okay, to have that ticket punched in that sense. No, no, it's it's saying whatever you ask of me, God pales in comparison to what you've already done for me. See, there's freedom, there's open-handedness in that. Whatever you ask. It doesn't say, I need to obey so that he won't reject me. It says, I can obey because he won't reject me. Peter says, what you should do, what you should do to live in, in this freedom is get going, repent. Don't just turn from the thing that doesn't bring life. That's one aspect, but turn to the thing that does bring life. Look at Jesus. Think the open arms of a, of a father ready to receive you back home. Believe that the gospel brings life, the type of life you're actually looking for. Believe that you needed Jesus to take on that cross along with everywhere you fall short on his shoulders for you. Believe that. And then he adds, be baptized. I know for some of you, maybe you've never taken that step as an adult, you're a follower of Jesus, you've never taken that step. September 22nd, we'll be doing baptisms. Man, pray about whether or not that might be your next right step. But this idea of repenting says to us, like, like maybe you walked in today and you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, longer than you can remember, but you forgot sometime along the way that you actually needed him. Maybe your rhythm of life uh, has led you to become what Martin Luther King Jr. called a practical atheist, claiming his name, but living like you don't need him and maybe living like you don't even want him. God will meet you there. If you get cut to the heart, if, you, if, if your heart is, is melted to the gospel, God will meet you there. That's what he does. So turn to him. Maybe for some of you in the room, uh, maybe you've been around someone for a long time, you love Summit, but you've never really kind of like considered the gospel. You just love the community of it. And I'm so glad you're here and thankful that you're a part of what's going on. Maybe you just walked in the room and, and not considered this maybe ever but you hear this and you say, like, I want to be on the side of my heart turning to the gospel. I want that for myself. Come find me. Talk to the prayer team afterwards. I would love to walk with you through this, walk toward Christ and community together. And for all of us, we all have a part to play here. Let's tell this story. Let's be sure our go gear is working. Let's create the type of community that moves with urgency into the lives of the people that God has given us to love, that we can be witnesses to this God who meets us where we are. We can be witnesses to this God who tells us the truth about ourselves, and we can be witnesses to this God who brings good news into that truth. This is what we are created for, and we're gonna continue to dig into this through this series, but let's commit to be that type of community together, centered on the gospel and moving with urgency. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift 
of, of your word. Thank you that 2,000 years later, it can still cut us to the heart. Thank you that you're not done. That in your goodness, you continue to bring people to you, continue to open people up to the idea of the gospel. You continue to transform lives and somehow it's amazing to think you invite us to be a part of that work. I know for me, God, it's, it's often difficult to, to trust in myself. I know probably there's some in the room that feel the same way, but you trust us. It's incredibly humbling and it's incredibly empowering. And so I pray that, uh, that your spirit would work in our lives, that we would be renewed and refreshed and challenged to be the community that you have called us to be, ultimately pointing with our lives and our words and our thoughts and our actions toward your gospel and throwing these doors open and the doors of our lives open to people to come and experience and hear the gospel the good news of your great love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.